Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Clips AI podcast. I'm Armel, one of the co-founders of Clips AI. And today we have a very special guest on our second episode, Jacqueline, the CEO and co-founder of Howdy. Jacqueline, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, thank you so much. Hi, everyone. I am Jacqueline Smira, co-founder and CEO of Howdy. Uh, Howdy helps U.S. tech companies hire and manage their dev teams in Latin. I love that. You, when I heard your first, when you told me that sentence, I was like, we need to figure out how to describe our company in one sentence just like that. I really love the explanation. <laughs> I, think, I mean, we spent, what, three months at YC figuring out how to say something so simply. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's surprising how difficult it is. Like, I don't think people really understand to, like, compress everything you do down to just, like, a single sentence. It, it almost feels weird because it feels like you're kind of, like, not telling everything right. Yeah, no, totally. And not only that, it's like it has to be simple and it has to be where everybody, like even fifth graders, can understand it. So, yeah, imagine, yeah, imagine trying to describe to a fifth grade actually this what this is. But <laughs> let's to get it kicked off, kind of what brought you into a world of startups? Oh, man. How how far back do you want me to go, Armel? <laughs> as far back as you're willing to tell people. <laughs> um, okay, so I, I'll start from the beginning. So, I I'm a little bit older. I grew up um, in the 80s and 90s. My mom was a computer engineer. So I grew up with computers, which at the time wasn't as normal, I would think, um, as it is today. And I just always had an affinity for technology, computer science, and programming because, of course, you, you look to your parents for inspiration. And uh, But, you know, when I got into it, I never really, like, had a passion for it. I'm just such, like, an outgoing person. I wanted to be with people. I didn't really know what that meant. And so I never went into computer science. I never thought that that would be, like, a good role or a good path for me. So I went into banking. I thought, like, let's be an investment banker. Graduated university in 2008, which, of course, was, like, this huge economic recession. And um, couldn't get a job in banking to save my life. So I just got a job in sales. And I ended up really liking it because it allowed me to connect with people. It allowed me to like basically just talk to people all day, every day, which was fun. Um, it was stressful, but it was fun. And uh, I did really well at the first company I was at. And in 2011, they had relocated me to Austin for this promotion that I had. And at the time, there was this huge emerging tech scene happening here which was awesome to see and just through osmosis to be a part of. And I said to myself, oh, my gosh, like I can marry the world of technology with my recent experience in sales and go and run sales for startups and tech companies here in Austin. So made the pivot and then kind of like the whole background all came together to make sense why everything happened to be the way that it is. And so that is how I got into the world of startups. That's so interesting. So, and, and at the time that you joined, what would you say was like the popularity of joining startups? Was this something like your friends were talking about? Yeah, that's a great question. At the time, it was something that, you know, it was exciting. It was what everybody was thinking about or wanting to be a part of, but like you're either in or you're out and you like didn't know how to get in. And so actually my way to get into the world of startups is one of my mentors was a chief revenue officer at a company that was um, a YC-backed company, and um, he brought me in, so it was through his recommendation. But I actually had a couple friends that were teachers that ended up quitting being a teacher to work in the world of tech. And so, yeah, I mean, I would say that the general vibe, at least for young professionals at the time, were people wanting to get into tech um, and quitting what they thought was going to be their professions to do it. I got you. Yeah, it seems like that's now... Now, tech seems to be like the common thing, the first thing people think about getting into. So I know. It wasn't like that in 2012. Yeah. I can tell you that. Times have changed. But so kind of fast forwarding to past couple of years, like why start, why start Howdy? 
So, you know, it's interesting. I've always had this desire to be an entrepreneur, even though I wasn't like the kid that was like knocking on doors and like selling candy or doing anything like that. I just I just loved the idea of being able to create something that would help people. And um, so I'd always think, I'm like, oh, is this a good idea? Or is that a good idea? Or should I do this? Or should I do that? And what I realized when you like really zoom out and you think about business in general, it's just a solution to a problem. And at the time, we were having like a really, really hard time hiring amazing technical talent because so many companies were moving to Austin and, you know, everyone from California. We had this like huge California rush. And so, so many companies were moving here. And there was this crazy amount of competition for like the very limited talent pool that we had here. And so, at the time, I was like, there's smart people all over the world. Like, let's go and connect them with the opportunities. And that was that that's what spawned the idea i love the idea because i don't think people understand just how how few talent there is in terms of engineering there's nowadays more people are coming computer science like i'm still in school right i see there's a lot of people in my classes but the more people i talk to the less of them actually want to become engineers like when they go into the role it's always kind of like that it's a it's an entry into tech for them so definitely there's a huge lack of talent there but in terms of how do you, uh, itself like how do you think about hiring the best talent yeah so you know i i feel like everybody when you think of the way that folks hire in general everyone's like they have their own pet project. Oh, only this, only, you know, one out of 10 people can pass this one special thing that I do, blah, 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 blah. But like the beautiful thing about computer science, just like math, just like science, is it can be very black and white. And so we've figured out a way, like once people pass a certain technical bar, then the main differences are not not technical, it's in communication. It's how do you problem solve? How do you think of problems? How do you dive, like dive into an issue that's happening? Because when you build a product, you want somebody that tends to be more holistic in the way they think about things. Like, I'm not gonna just like get this directive to like go and solve this one tiny problem. It's let's zoom out. Why are they even asking me to build this thing? How am I even building this thing? What is the main problem that we're trying to solve? Because maybe I as the boss might say, go build this thing. But if you're the one doing it and you understand the why behind it, you might have a better answer for what it is that you guys are actually trying to solve for anyways. And so I think so many like key 10X players, and I know that sounds so cliche to say, but like the, the, the true like talent that really makes a monumental difference once you all hit that same technical bar are the people that zoom out and can ask the right questions to understand the true why for what it is that they're trying to solve for. So it's more about like that soft skill than it is about the hard. And how, how do you evaluate that? Because kind of like the name, it's soft. It's, it yeah, seems like it's hard to. It's, it's hard for sure. So we put them through a several step vetting process. The first two are course are technical ones, just a general like computer science type knowledge. Then the second one is more like tech stack specific just to gauge their, their technical understanding. And then we put them through a couple just personal like interviews where we're doing system design, architectural design, we'll ask them to build the product, we'll say that, you know, we've got this thing that we have and we need this issue. And really what we're searching for are the questions that they ask and how much like intellectual curiosity that a person has. The more intellectual curiosity someone has, we know that that's the same way that they're going to approach when they're working and solving with different companies here in the U.S. That makes sense. That makes sense. And then I know another part of kind of like your uh, the hiring process for how do you when you're vetting them for other companies is culture. And so to kind of get on that play, um, what how do you balance between like understanding a company's culture and actually being able to find it for uh, find talent for it? Um, and then I think we'll move on to talking about more specifically the culture you have at Howdy. Yeah, uh, great question. So they, you know, I always think that people 
are like additive to every single company. So if you're like thinking we're all making like one big soup and everybody adds like a different spice, I think where people get it wrong is they're trying to add people that's like the same spice. Like we've got a bunch of salt, let's go add more salt. Or we've got a bunch of pepper, let's go add more pepper. And it's like, no, no, it's like, it's the blend that makes something so wonderful. And so a lot of times before we introduce them to folks and we're trying to find these cultural fits, it's more of the like, do you tend to be more communicative in Slack? Do you tend to be more communicative like elsewhere? Like how is it that you have meetings? How is it that you like to build? Is it more agile? And so it's more like, how do you like to work? And less about like who you are as a person. I think that we get into these like, very strong clicks where people are like, I'm only gonna hire people like me. And what we found is that if you can have a blended vision or excuse me, a blended version of who your team is, you're gonna have a much, much better understanding of how to create and develop together, so. See, that's interesting. Cause that kind of uh, rings my mind of like, what are kind of like the most common mistakes like people make when hiring, especially since you have so much data of like so many different companies. Yeah. They hire people like them. That's like a huge mistake, you know. Uh, you want to duplicate yourself, yes, but like I, I hire people that are better than you. Hire people that know more than you. Hire people that have a different perspective than you. Hire people from different backgrounds. Hire people from different education. Hire, like if you can just look at yourself or your team, find all of those gaps that you guys have and then hire for that. Rather than like, I think historically what we've always done is gravitate towards the people that are like us. Yeah. And that is, you just get a bunch of views and it's like, you only see one side of the puzzle and people fall, fall down by doing that. That is a, it is very easy. That's the easy kind of way out, right? Cause it feels more comfortable. You yeah. can bet for it. Then what do you say to people that are just kind of like, well, if I, if they're not like me, if I can't really like understand or see where they're coming from, I guess like know their background to phrase a question better. How do you go about hiring someone and filling in the gap? Is there like a systematic process that you guys have kind of built in? You know, we ask people, we have a very easy in, very easy out business model. And so a lot of times we just have to ask, we ask them to trust us. Hey, like, just trust us. Hire this person. He's amazing. He's going to be awesome. And, um, and when we you know, prove to be right, then they defer to us a lot more too. So a lot of times when they say no, we just push back and, and hopefully they give us a chance. Yeah, you can't, it's it's hard to convince someone. They kind of have to see the proof yeah. of the pudding. That's what we do. We, we, we're just like, don't, don't take our word for it. Just like work with them. If it doesn't work out, you know, no worries. Got you. And then, so in terms of how do you specifically, like, what have you gone right about culture for your team? I, <laughs> what have we gotten right? I, I, you know, uh, I have been fortunate enough to be a part of a lot of smart, uh, a lot of startups, whether it's, you know, startups that were midsize that went big, or it was like founding team type startups or kind of like everywhere in between. And I got the, I had the privilege of being able to see where a lot of founders made mistakes. And I would see the biggest mistakes is not having like a true clear North star where it's like, this is what we're going for. This is like how we can rally people behind or they have that North star, but then it changes or it evolves. And they're like this month, it's this or next month, it's this or next quarter. And it just feels like you're in this like endless marathon where like you don't have wins, even if you are truly winning. And so very early on, we identified what our North Star metric is and just everything we do is aimed towards that. And you can build culture behind that. You can build momentum behind that because it allows you to be on the same page. And so a lot of the things where friction happens is just avoided because it's like you're either in it to do this thing that we're doing or you're not. And then together we can we can all it's like a sports team yeah. right you know yeah, it's like let's go beat the red team we hate the red team i don't know yeah no that's hilarious um 
something that, that really interesting you mentioned was his North Star metric. I remember the first time we met, because a little background, Howdy's my mentor um, at Longhorn Startup. But first time we met, I told you, it was like, hey, we are thinking of a North Star metric, and we think it's retention. And what did you tell me? <laughs> I said, I mean, the only thing that's going to happen if you ever t- – it's, it's just not a thing that can grow. You, The North Star metric is the thing that it's like – Every single decision can go towards that thing, and hopefully that thing is tied towards growth. And so I don't know what exactly I said, but it was something along the lines of if you only focus on retention, then you're never going to get any new customers, and you're only going to stay in the same space that you're at. No, 100%. I think it was was really eye-opening whenever you shifted from, like, this one number that really doesn't mean – like, obviously it means a lot and retention is super important, but to a value metric, something that is based on either, like, usage or that you can directly tell your customers are getting value. Um, But – so coming back to culture, what mistakes have you made? Making bad hires. Is that, that, is that unavoidable? It is. You know, it's going to happen. I think that especially as a first-time founder, I, I mean, actually even as like a, a multi-time founder, like you make decisions by committee a lot because you don't profess to know all things. But sometimes by doing that, you go against your gut and that's the thing you don't want to do. Um, and so, like, you'll make hires that are against your gut, and then they come, they join the team, and then it, a bad hire is so impactful to culture, to performance, to everything, because it also makes the other A players. And it, a bad hire in one company might be an amazing company, amazing hire in another company. And so it's not to say that they're a bad person. That's where I think people get wrong, too. It's like you can make an amazing hire with an amazing person who is, like, incredibly smart and talented. But if they're not the right fit for what it is that you need, it can go it can go south very quickly. And it's very demotivating, demoralizing um, for everybody else. And so is it hard to – I don't know if it's avoidable, though. I think you've got to learn and you've got to make decisions. But once you realize that it's bad – you gotta you gotta separate quickly because then people will respect you and value because it's okay to make mistakes. It's just can you learn from them and move forward? That's so true. I think we luckily avoided because we were wanting to bring on someone because I think we got caught in the trap where we heard find all your smartest friends and like bring them on. Yeah. But as soon as we started the process of bringing on that extra person, it was like we could just tell in our gut it didn't feel right. right? So definitely, and I guess when it comes more to like what uh, the problem you're solving with Howdy, uh, like. What mistakes do people make when they're hiring internationally outside of the U.S.? Well, they don't work with us. No. Um, you know, it just depends. When people are hiring internationally, you've got to ask, they have to ask themselves, like, why am I doing this? Is it because I'm having a hard time finding that person here? Is it because I'm trying to save money? Is it because I want a unique worldwide perspective? What is the reason that they're trying to do it? Um I think people don't ask themselves that question to understand what it is that they're trying to do. Uh, if they can ask themselves, like, I'm doing this for this reason, then they should partner with the company that's going to help them do it. Because there's, like, a million folks that do some version of what we do, um, even down to, like, using a payroll provider, an international payroll provider. Like, you source the talent, you bring them on, you use this international payroll provider to pay the team. That might work out if, like, your main goal is to, like, do something as, like, low cost as possible. But the problem with doing something like that is, like, you're not giving them benefits. Like, you're not really understanding their culture and giving back to the employees. So your retention is going to be low. So that's okay. You know, if you're like, hey, I just need somebody to come help me do this thing for six months. Perfect. Perfect solution. If it's like, no, I'm trying to build, like, this, like, really robust team that's bought in and they're product stakeholders, then you need to look for a solution that's going to be more giving to the individual as an employee so they they feel more taken care of and safer. 100%. And 
I guess what are some of like the unique challenges you face when you deal with like working with developers in Latin America and can trying to connect them to U.S. companies or other companies? I mean, there's so many different cultural differences uh, in the beginning or in the early days. There was um, this assumed. Here's an example. Uh, in a lot of the countries in Latam, every six months or every uh, 12 months, depending on the country, they automatically get a raise, a salary raise. No matter what, if they're still employed, they automatically get a raise. It's just not a thing that people talk about. And part of the reason is because inflation is high in so many of the countries down there. And so they're trying to stay up to date with inflation. And then in addition to that, it's also an opportunity to talk about like, oh, you're doing a great job. Here's also a raise. Um, but the the money conversation is top down. It's never brought by the individual employee. In fact, it's kind of like taboo as the individual employee to talk about it. And so one, it's a mistake. Two, I didn't realize this, but like, if you're not giving them raises that often um, to match with inflation, they feel like, oh, my gosh, like, what the heck is going on? Like, they don't value me. They must not value me. So early on, I learned that, and I, and I talked to them, like, oh, no, 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 with U.S. companies, like, if you want a raise or if you feel like you deserve to get a raise, that is a conversation that is, like, employee-led, unfortunately. While we would love it that it's employer-led, most of the time it comes from the employee saying, like, hey, here's all the value I've brought. Like, I'd love to be considered for this raise or this promotion or this, this or that. Um, if you don't throw your hat in the ring, then people just kind of, like, ignore the problem. And so that was something early on we had to learn. And so now we're teaching and we're educating the developers how to have those conversations with the U.S. tech companies because it is very uncomfortable for them. But then also on the other side, we're working with the partner saying, like, hey, this is their expectation. And so, like, when they bring it to you, it might be uncomfortable. It might be awkward, you know, because they're just not used to having those conversations. Yeah, that's really interesting. So. I, I, I'm trying to think about it from like the jurisdiction jurisdictions of uh, LATAM. Like, does if a if a country says you have to, you know, you have to give them a raise, does the U.S. company have to follow that, or is it kind of that seems sticky? It is sticky, right? That's where we come in. <laughs> um, so we a lot of the uh, people we work with, we employ them in our foreign office. So we have businesses set up in a lot of countries down south, and we'll employ them locally. Um, luckily, the U.S. dollar against foreign currencies tends to encapsulate that, you know, those natural inflation points or inflection points, and so we're doing it on the back end, and in fact, the prices never change here in the U.S. If they get paid in U.S. dollar, which a lot of our developers do as well because they prefer it, um, then it's just more of like a, a learning curve to the developer. Like, hey, you're getting paid in USD now. Like, you shouldn't be expecting a 10% raise every six months. It's just not how it works, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. That must have been a really fun problem to solve. <laughs> uh, but so then what role do you see uh, LATAM playing in the future of uh, the tech industry? You know, it is a huge, still, I believe, untapped market. You know, when we look at the jobs, we we're, we stay very close to the U.S. jobs report. And, you know, last month's came out 500,000 jobs still added, jobs continuing to grow and not slow down, even though we're seeing, like, record layoffs. Um, but what people don't really notice is, like, when you zoom out and see all the layoffs and everything that's happening, you know, a company like Google, for example, hired a crazy amount of folks, and then they did a crazy layoff, but still the net growth of employees from pre-pandemic to now is still much greater than it was. And um, it, they're just kind of leveling it out. So there's still so many unfilled roles. There's still so many unfilled opportunities. I think, like, it was reported by Wall Street Journal that in 2023 there was going to be over 2 million unfilled tech jobs anyways because data is compounding and there's just so much stuff that's happening and cybersecurity is getting huge. And so how, what role do I see? I feel like we're going to get into a place where it's just all hands on deck. You know, how can we as a world work together 
and utilize our resources from all over the place in a way that's safe and, you know, where it's easy. LATAM is instrumental because it's the same time zones as the United States, whereas other countries it ends up being a little bit challenging because you have to, like, wait five hours or six hours or 12 hours to get a response. So I feel like, you know, in the early days of tech, we went to India and we went to Southeast Asia to help, you know, with labor shortages. And it's I, I think LATAM is just in its infancy of the value it's going to bring to U.S. companies specifically. I've never I never even thought about the time zone because that's huge. Like, it's huge. It's because it, I know that the running joke and some people in tech is like, oh, you have to wait for 12 hours to get those problems before you can move forward with one thing. And that's wow. I'm 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 getting more sold on Howdy as we speak. <laughs> right and kind of last question on um, team building and just uh, hiring in general is like. What do you say to those that are against remote teams? Because just for preference, like, I think our first couple of hires uh, is going to be in person because I just feel like that synergy is yeah. just so important. Uh, but I think at some point, right, it, 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 it's not feasible to continue to think that you could do it fully in person. So what do you say to people like me um, and others that are just against remote teams? Yeah, I think that is – I think it's great. you got to know what's important to you uh, and having people like – you know, shoulder to shoulder going through the, the trials and tribulations together. is There's just so much, you know, that that gets missed when you're not, you know, walking the halls together. However, um, we believe that too, which is why we set up offices down there. And so what I would say to you is like, great, do that here. And then as you expand your team, you know, grow at in whatever way and capacity is that it's important to you. Um, that was my thesis, though, is that folks don't like remote employees. Folks want to be with people. They want to be shoulder and shoulder with their peers. They want to be able to solve these problems. And so what one of the things we did is we build physical offices down in LATAM so that they can actually build their dev team together all in one office if they wanted to. I mean, they can continue to have them remote. Um, so then maybe the technical leader can go down there once a month or maybe the technical leader is down there, you know, and then that counterpart is something that is remote. What, what else can I say? I mean, it, people are... People are always going to want to be together. Work, I think, will continue to be disrupted. I think it will continue to be remote, but people are going to want to be together regardless. And so if you get big enough and you need to build teams elsewhere, people have offices in, like, San Francisco and Denver and Miami. There's no reason they can't do have an office down there, too. That, that was exactly what I was thinking. That was such a good response because that is such a good example of, because it's you know the bigger your company gets like they're in different cities and like what's the difference if you can still have it where they you hire talent somewhere else but they still those people can still be together I'm really sold I think <laughs> well I'll 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 message you when it's time um, yeah. but now kind of this is this is really crazy to me you guys haven't spent a single dollar on sales and marketing how is that even possible like what has been your go to market I know isn't that wild uh so. Our, when I first started Howdy, we were bootstrapping it, and um, I was doing it just because I was trying to solve this real problem that a couple of the companies I was working at were having. I was like, let me go and, and fix it for you, and let me go and solve it for you. Well, like I mentioned, like the whole thing with the inflation and people getting raises every six months, there was also a lot of like tax implications that I wasn't prepared for, and I was personally funding it. So what I did in the beginning is I was like, don't tell anybody I'm helping you. Like, let me figure out all the kinks. Let me work out like all the pain points. And then once I feel like I have a good understanding of what's going on, then I'll ask for like introductions because at the time I was solving a real pain, a real problem. And so that was basically all of 2019, end of 2019. At the time we were working with three different companies and we said, okay, go ahead. Like, let us like, 
you can introduce us to other companies. And then very quickly, we got 10 customers, you know, and, um, and then from there, I think because of the caliber of individuals that we were connecting them with, I think because of the way that we were helping bridge that cultural gap and the communication gap and, and because they were actually physically all together too, like the developers as well, um, it was a solution they had never seen before. And so if, I mean, you're a student, right, at, at UT, and if there's other students having this pain point or a problem with something, anything, and you found the solution, I'm sure there's five other people you can go and tell. And so that was very quickly what happened. It was just people telling people, telling people, reaching out to us and that, us helping. That word of mouth, that, that's like the kind of magic um, thing that you tried to, that you try to crack. And I guess, kind of, I guess just diving deeper into that, was there, did you have to set this on top of incentive for like the other companies too? Or was it just kind of like out of goodwill? Like, this is just so awesome. I want to tell other people. Yeah. So I learned that early on in sales is if people are truly happy with what it is that you're doing, they're going to tell people regardless of whatever you do to incentivize them. If you do incentivize people, what will end up happening is you will get customers that are not ideal and it will be the wrong signal. And so at the time, people had asked too, like, oh, you know, can you give me an incentive or can you do this or can you do that? I just don't. I was like, no. Like, if you, it's totally fine to not share what it is that we're doing if you don't feel like compelled to. And we didn't necessarily even ask people to share what we were doing. It was more like, this is going to sound ridiculous, but it was more like we were giving permission to let people know that they were working with us because before they were like, I've got, I've got friends that want to work with like, you guys. I'm like, ah, like we can't help you because we didn't have the support at the time. Like we didn't have the infrastructure set up to be able to support more people in the early days. That's interesting. And just kind of going back to what you said about you're, you're like, don't tell anyone. We are trying to fix the kinks and everything. It kind of goes opposed to what you hear of like launch something as soon as possible, even if it sucks. Um, why was it that you kind of held off? Did you ever have that conflict between like we should launch sooner, we should let people tell sooner? Yeah. Um, well, there's one big reason for that because I was it was personally funded by me in my savings account, and so um, very early on, I had an error in my calculations um, that cost me forty thousand dollars personally which like was very painful. And so that definitely made me a little trigger shy <laughs> at that point. And uh, yeah, no, I mean, when you do things for yourself without other people's money, you are a lot more cautious and a lot more careful about the decisions and the things that you do. Um, and if you have the luxury to be able to like not launch, then, you know, you might as well nail it before you scale it. I like that. I'm going to take that back to my team. Um, and, I, and I was also guessing or wondering whether any of, like, the regulatory or just, like, dealing with, like, you know, there's so much tax implications, all that stuff, that if you mess that up, that's, like... It's that's, bad. Yeah. That's, that's, I know. I was like, I don't want to, like, I, I'm not trying to be cute with taxes. I want to pay them all. You just tell me. You know, I, don't, I also don't speak Spanish, you know? So mm. I'm going down there, and I'm having conversations where, like, you know, they're very graciously speaking to me in English, but, like... English isn't their first language either. And so there were so many missed things that was shared. And that's the uh, other crazy thing about working with another country is there are so many natural assumptions. Like, for example, the thing that got messed up is they have this thing called Aguinaldo, which is like every June and December, every employee gets like an automatic half, sal half a month salary bonus. And I was like, I got my tax bill. And I was like, what is this, all of this money I have to spend? What did I do? And they're like, oh, Aguinaldo, obviously. And I was like, what do you mean, Aguinaldo, obviously? Like, what? what is 
Texas. And they're like, duh. It's, I, like, I'm like, we don't have that in the U.S. And they're like, you don't have that in the U.S.? Well, how do you go on vacation? Or like, you know, the other, yeah, yeah I could, I could. Yeah, that's hilarious. Um, okay, now taking a step back. So you guys grew pretty quickly. Uh, just all word of mouth, which is amazing. But for me, coming into this world of I'm a computer science major, I'm not like businessy and all that stuff is like, I don't understand, like, what is growth? Like, can you define actually what that means? Because it seems to be this catch-all word. Yeah. Uh, when you say what is growth, like, when you mean, like, revenue, do you mean, like, do you mean, like, how we measure it? Like, yeah, what is growth to you? To you? How, yeah. Yeah, how you... I mean, I would say, like, the catch-all worth, word to me, again, I think, and the reason I go off of this, I keep hitting the mic, I'm sorry if it gets messed up, uh, is revenue. You know, it's the amount of money that we're bringing in versus the amount of money that we had. Um, there are lots of other vanity metrics. Like I know there's like user growth and there's like time on platform and there's this and there's that. And like, that is something you can use to spend for marketing. You know, like if you want to go out and raise funds or if you want to go out on this, because the idea is like the whole thing, the whole game is how do I make this company a billion dollar company? How do I get a billion dollar exit? Right. And how do you get a billion dollar exit? You've got to be a super profitable, not I mean maybe not profitable, but you got to bring in a lot of money in order to do something like that, or at least the, have the markets think that one day your company's going to be worth a lot of money. And so early on, Facebook did this thing where he was like, look at all of our users and look at how many people are on the platform and look at this and look at that. And they hadn't monetized Facebook yet. And like, I think Yahoo had given them an offer for a billion dollars and they hadn't made like a penny or something like that. And Zach was like, I don't care about the money. The money will come. Let's just build like a really good platform that's really usable and then we can easily monetize it. And so I think that that has kind of changed the way people have thought about growth is they're like, oh, well, if we do this or if we get, you know, a million followers on Instagram or TikTok or this or that or blah, 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 then, you know, it's going to be valuable. It all ties back to money because at the end of the day, why do you care about that? Why do you care about the million users or the 100,000 followers or the – it's because it's how do you monetize that audience? Mm, that's – that was some real – I have to suck that one in. <laughs> um, that's interesting because I think oftentimes, like – why why would people use those vanity metrics? Is it because like under their underlying business is just not solving the like they're just not making the number grow, their actual revenue grow, or is it because like they literally just have not turned on monetization? Like I don't know. I guess the the general question I'm asking is like, what do people often like get wrong about growth? Yeah, so you know, this was like I'm thinking circa two thousand tens, early two thousand early tens, maybe twelves, there was this huge push to do this freemium model where it was like, just get it out there, get it in the hands of people, get people to use it, and then upcharge them on usage or upcharge them on like once you hit a certain date or once you hit a certain this or once you hit a certain that. Um, the idea was the world is getting like over overwhelmed with so many different solutions, so many different SaaS tools, so many so many different whatever. It's like, how do you get market share? That's what everyone's caring about. How do I get market share? Well, market share is people doing something that you want them to do, and you're more likely to get them over to you if it's free, right? Um, I think that's where all I think that's where it got all confusing is because people are like, oh, let's go increase this usage, and then people would go and raise tens of millions of dollars on these like super high user numbers without having ever received a dollar. And now we're in the market where like there is no like I mean very 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 low venture funding because none of these companies they they keep asking it's so funny like a lot of the investors that um 
don't work with us, they'll be like, oh, well, what's your runway? That's like a common expression investors have. That means how much money do you have before you go out of business? And I'm always like, indefinite, because I built like a good business model from day one. But that is not the standard. Everyone is more about obtaining users and then eventually figuring out a way, a path to monetization. Does it not affect, because the common thing I hear is that if you go for profitability or go for like having that infinite runway, you're giving up growth. You're just inherently giving up growth. Um, so it kind of boggles my mind. Like I just, there's just too many conflicting ideas in the world about this. Yeah, you know, I think it has. I think it all depends too on like what it is that you're building, what it is that you're solving for. Um, yes, it does. It does give up growth, but you also have to ask yourself like, are these my buyers anyways? Are these my users? Because a lot of times I was working for this company that had a hundred thousand users, maybe even more actually, maybe maybe even two hundred thousand. It was like a huge, a huge amount of people, but only a couple thousand of them were paying. And they would get like all of this data about like what the product needs to do and what it needs to be and how it needs to evolve. But a majority of that feedback came from people that weren't even willing to give them a dollar. And it's like, well, do you want to build this thing to the people that aren't willing to give you any money? Or do you want to build this thing for the people who are willing to give you money? In fact, like they continue to give you more and more money. And so like where where should we build this to? And um, my belief has always been like having too many users can be too much noise so that it gives a lot of the wrong signals for what it is that you actually should be doing and building. And so I would rather have less users paying me but getting the right buying signals because you'll get, I believe, faster product market fit by iterating on that. 100%. 100%. I fully agree. Um, And so... Kind of taking a step back, we are in 2023. Time has flown. Wow. Um, The pandemic hit and the world changed a lot. But you guys started before the pandemic. I guess, how did you take advantage of such like a big change and especially how people thought about work? So, you know, I was lucky. I don't think I took advantage more so that I started this business in 2018 and was really trying to understand everything in 2019. Um, A lot of the countries in Latin America, in order to open up a bank account, you have to be physically present. You know, in order to open up a business, you have to be physically present. And um, so I had already done a lot of that stuff just so that I could have a business and I can have a bank account. I could pay people. And then the pandemic hit in 2020. And uh, to be honest, I was really scared because all of our customers at the time went on a hiring freeze. And then people were like, we had one that did, you know, a pretty big layoff. I was like, oh, my gosh, what is this going to mean for us? Like, are we going to go out of business before we even like we just started going? And um, they paused for a couple months. And come June 2020, then it was like an explosion. And I realized at the time, like, oh, no, this is like amazing. We happen to be at the right right place at the right time. And having done all the laywork that like we're naturally keeping other competitors out of the market because they can't even go down there and open up businesses to do what it, what it is that we're doing. Wow. Yeah, that is it's right. Timing is like one of those big, big factors of succeeding. But I mean, eventually you probably would have made it. Um, <laughs> and so because of the pandemic and there's probably a few others, uh, you, you kind of mentioned that this space is a little bit, a little bit probably under under exaggerating competitive um how do you think about differentiating yourself in such a competitive market so for us we just go back to the problem that we're trying to solve you know who it is that we're trying to help even though it is such a saturated market it's a huge huge market it's every single software developer in the world you know working at 
companies. It doesn't even have to be U.S. companies, but like let's just pretend it's just U.S. companies, right? It's still just like a, a ginormous, ginormous market space. And so we very rarely will run into any competitors. And the way I think about it is I actually like don't like looking at what other people are doing because I just want to like focus on what it is that we're trying to do. So a lot of times people will send me websites or they'll send me like social media accounts of other companies and they'll be like, did you see this? They're ripping off our blah, blah, blah. Or did you see this? They're doing this so much better. And I've I've, like trained my team. I'm like, don't share that. Don't share it with me. Like, I'm not trying to be naive, but like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be influenced. You know, I really want to just get the feedback from our users, get the feedback from the prospects that we're working with and just make sure that we're building the business for the people that are giving us money. I, I really resonate with that. And I think that's something we're trying to figure out of like the dynamic of, cause I'm product, right? Yeah. And so I'm just like, I don't need any of that noise to come it's and an, think about how I like build product for this. Yeah. Because there, it's going to like also be this like unconscious bias because it's like, and then what, here's the worst part, right? When you get into this race, then you're going to see, they're going to start raising money. Oh, we had this one person, one competitor, of ours, they had raised like 20 million. They had gone through YC. They had raised like 20 million, then 100 million, then a half a billion. And I was just like, oh my God, I cannot, I cannot look at this. I cannot think about this because like I would be paralyzed, paralyzed. Yeah. I can't compete with a company that's raised $500 million. Like what? That's insane. Yeah, it's, it's hard. Um, and another thing, I guess, on that note is like, when you do have a competitor that has raised just much more money than you or just has more resources, right? Like, how, what is a strategy? Like, what do you think about? Do you kind of go back and say, we need to do, we need to focus on doing one thing very well? Or like, yeah, how do you even think about that? I, I just, I block it out. I don't even, I don't even think about it. You know, I just come, I, I understand like, you know, our key differentiators. Luckily, they're not doing exactly what it is that we're doing, um, which is nice. And so just, what it is that we bring to the table, how we differentiate ourselves. And I go to every single call with a customer that we're having, if we if we do have to meet with them and just say, hey, look, we might not be a perfect fit for everyone. It just depends on you and what it is that you're looking to solve and how you're looking to solve it. Yeah. And I, I also go back, and I have to tell myself this too, but we don't need to work with everybody. We only need to work with, you know, a few hundred companies to be a billion-dollar business. So I just got to find the few hundred that want to work with us. Yeah, looking at it that way, kind of it's kind of like, looking at the goal and taking a step back and really understanding well, how much pe- how, how do we need to get there and how big is this market? I don't know if it was you that told me this, but the analogy of like, you want to be in a market so big, like you're not re- like, you know, bumping shoulders with people in the market. You're just like in your own space, yeah. in your own world. Yeah. Uh, so that's really interesting. And I guess now, so really on the folk, on the idea that you only need to work with a few people, you're not there yet. So how do you plan to, I guess, just scale to reach more companies and uh, get more developers on the platform? So we are in an interesting time because even though there's still so many open jobs and there's still so much need for what it is that we do, there is not the same kind of urgency. So before the urgency from, and it all comes from like the VCs, right, to the startups. Like grow at all costs, hire at all costs, build the product, get it out the door. Um, You had actually asked a question earlier about like, well, why are they doing this? Why are they telling, why did you make the decision to like really slow down before you went to market? To kind of go back to that point, VCs will say, launch at all costs, Put your market in because you're. It's funny money. It's monopoly money. Who cares? Go get because they think that's how you're going to get feedback and you're going to iterate and evolve and move faster. Which I agree to some point, but um, with with this 
in particular, I just think that like, gosh, when you when you look at the entire like perspective of what it is that you're trying to do, and I've got 500 customers that I'm looking for, we've got companies that bought with us and are working with us and continuing to build the team with us because of our old messaging. And today, people are like, well, I'm not growing at all costs. I don't need as much money to like do all these things. Like, we're just going to kind of chill for a little bit. And so it's like, how do I how do I change my messaging? So we're actually going back to the drawing board to say like, well, what is the messaging re- that's resonating with folks? What's who's our new buyer? What are they buying? What do they want? Like they've still everybody still has ten job openings, you know. But when you go and you ask like, hey, you know, how soon do you need to hire them? And they're like, oh, you know, just you know, whenever we find the right person. Whereas before they were like yesterday, you know. So it's like, how do we go up against a perception? Like we've had a huge perception shift, but not necessarily a huge market shift. That's interesting. That's an interesting problem we're having to that, go up against. That's really interesting. And then how do you, not to spend too much time, because we do have a timeline to go on, but really quickly, if, if the perception changes, but the market does not itself, then like, I guess I guess the question I'm trying to ask is, then how do you message that? Like, what is, like, what is, what are you trying to say now? I know, I know. What is the pain now? I don't know. That's what we're finding out. So... <laughs> So we are actually, we did raise funds. um, And part of that was to go big in sales and marketing for the first time ever, to put our brand out there, to start advertising, to start marketing. And um, we're actually going to do this huge push with a bunch of different messages. And we are going to spend money to actually see what message is resonating, what's going to convert, where where are people going to come to us? Is it cost savings? Is it, you know, diversify your talent pools to have a more holistic perception? Is it I don't know. We don't we don't we've got like 12 different hypotheses. And, and so, so now we're actually going to put money behind it and find out which one converts I at see. least into leads and then have a conversation with them and do more of like product market research rather yeah. than like trying to sell them on us. Yeah, no, 100%. So, so really right now so you're at that phase of experimenting yeah. heavy of like having to rethink your your go to marketing approach. Yeah, um, it's interesting. It's fun. Kind of like the I guess I don't know if this is a debate in in the uh, startup world, but what's more important to get right, product or distribution? I think distribution. Hmm, interesting. I know. I know. I know. And here's why. Because you're going to have like a loose idea of what your product should be. But until you understand your market, you're not going to actually know. Like, it's like the way I envision it is like your product is very fuzzy, right? It's like very, very, or it should be, you know? It's very, very fuzzy. And then it gets clearer and clearer and clearer the more people you talk to that are willing to pay you for it. That's how you know you've hit something. And then it's like crystal clear. And so in a way, I think distribution really hyper-focuses you on what your product should be. How do you then, I mean, in in the beginning, right, how do you even get feedback on something? I would just tell people, like, hey, I'm trying to build this thing or I'm wanting to build this thing. Do you have this pain point? Because, like, again, all businesses is is a a solution to a problem. Well, what is the problem you're trying to solve? For example, with Clips AI, AI, you're taking long-form content. You're making it easy for people to get short-form content that you can export to all these social mediums. What is my pain? I can tell you 10 pain points I have with that. Well, one, like, I don't have the resources on my team to be able to sit there and, like, chop it up and edit it and, like, make it in a way. Or at least if I do, like, they're going to put it on the back burner. Or I have to go and hire a video editor, and that's going to cost me, like, gobs of money, and maybe that guy's, like, not even good. Or maybe I have to go and find, I've got a video editor here, and then I've got this other person here, I've got, you know, and so it's just like a million different things. And it's like, wow, can I just like put this thing in this magic little box and outcomes like if I want 15 seconds, 30 seconds, you know, whatever. Um, So 
I think if you you have your product idea and you go and you ask people, do you have this problem or do you have a problem with this space? And if they say yes, then it's like, hey, can I ask you a bunch of questions? And then what is that worth to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. I think it was interesting because we had started kind of, we put the team together February 2022, but we didn't launch a product until December of 2022. But from like February all the way up until September, we're just talking to people, right? Yeah. And it just... It, like you're so right it becomes crystal clear once the more people you talk to and especially when you just get something in people's hands everything becomes clearer everything so becomes clearer for those listening launch um or don't launch but figure out distribution yeah it's like it's like it's like soft launch kind of right it's like yeah. you know it's 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 i i worked with a company there was one company that they spent a year building the mvp a year okay mm. and i went started working I sold I had sold the first kind of like version of it to somebody on that like Thursday after I had started on Monday and I was like okay where's the login page and like they hadn't even considered a login page for for what it is that they were building they're like oh my god we've never had anybody log into this thing before and then sure enough like that should have been my first red flag but it wasn't um sure enough we get them signed up and I mean they had no but they spent a year building this thing in a complete vacuum with no feedback just based on their own like thoughts of what it should be and do and um man that was that was that's hard yes a lot of waste of time (laughs) that's interesting so this leads that's a perfect segue into my next question of like What's the most critical thing uh, pre-product market fit companies should focus on? I mean, gosh, pre-product market fit, their messaging, like who who is their targeting? Why they're there? I mean, there's so many different things. <laughs> uh, who are they targeting? What is what is their thing that they think is important? And then just validating that over and over and over, but validating against it, like. I think it should be against you know if people are willing to pay you for it or not. Mm-hmm. If people aren't willing to pay you for it, then like. Hundred percent. It's that's just we're, we're, you're gonna. This is a little bit of a live mentorship, guys. You yeah. Get to hear because right now we felt like. Tell me if I'm wrong. We felt like we validated our idea to the point that it, it, this. It, it just seems like we just need to get the product to solve the problem in the sense that now we've crossed over 800 people that have signed up on our wait list. Amazing. Right. Got one uh, paying customer, and so at this point. Is there more validation? How do you, where do you go from there if you're in a position where you feel like you validated through people just signing up, being interested in it, you're getting some um, feedback, and you even got someone to pay for other startups that are in that position and for us personally, like where do we go after that? I mean, I would say you've got yourself a business. Like let's start figuring out how to get more people to pay for it and more people to use it. I think that especially very smart people uh, like you and your founders, you know what it could be and what it could do but you lose track of how far removed a lot of your users are. And like even just the ability of what it can do today is insanely valuable to a point where they should be monetized, like should be giving you money for it. And so right now, if I were you, I would be figuring out a way of like, okay, I've got one person paying me, I've got 800 users, of the 800 users, X number are power users. Okay, how do I convert these power users into paid users? What is it? And maybe it just means your pricing's wrong. You know, maybe maybe you've got, you know, a hundred people that are willing to pay you money. Yeah. We're gonna have an interesting conversation today. But <laughs> moving on. Um besides uh besides growth, what should post product market fit companies focus on? Failing quickly. I especially in the early days, anytime like I mean, we would make some like 
bogus errors, just like the dumbest mistakes you could possibly imagine. And I remember celebrating all of them because I'm like, this is so exciting because like we made this like super dumb bogus error on something that was not business critical. And like this could have happened for Apple. You know, we were in a contract with Apple at the time and we hadn't like closed it. But I'm like, oh, my gosh, could you imagine if we did this, but we had a thousand developers and that happened? That would have been huge. Thank God it only happened here. And so, like, I know there's that whole adage, like, fail fast and quickly and, you know, learn from it. But it's true. Like, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to run fast just so long as you celebrate the failure because and, and learn from that. Yeah. so that you can make sure you don't make that mistake when it does become business critical. Yeah, it's such a cliche, but I think one of my favorite like uh, ways to think about it is that, I can't remember who said this, but if you were to look, if you were to graph, right, on the uh, x-axis, it's number of years, and then the y-axis, is the number of mistakes you make per year. If you end up making a lot of mistakes in the first couple of years, the number of mistakes you make per year ends up trending downwards and kind of like this graph that looks reverse of what you would want your revenue graph to look yeah, like. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's such an interesting mistake. More mistakes you make. Over time, you'll make less, but you can never not make mistakes. Yeah, you can never not make mistakes. And it's great. Like, again, as long as it doesn't make your business go out, you know, like, it's a great thing. It really is. And it's taking a bit uh trip back. Um, so when did you do YC again? Winter 21. Winter 21. What was the most important lesson, just one, that just you learned one. from YC? Maybe two, if it's if you you can't hold back. I I won't I won't necessarily say this is the most important lesson, but I will say one of the most shocking things for me was I you know I still to this day hold YC on a pedestal with all the companies that they produce and the founders that they create, and my YC mentor at the time Tim Brady was one of the founders of Yahoo, amazing, super super smart dude, and um, we were about we were trying to get our pitch together, and we do a lot of like let's just say like <laughs> data science where we're matching profiles and we're matching companies and there's a lot of al- algorithmic, algorithmic processing happening in the background. And so I was trying to like be like, oh, the ML platform to help you find your like top developers or the this or the that. And I was trying to be all fancy because while we did it, um, what he said to me was like, so like who cares? Like people don't like jargon. Just tell them what you do. And I remember being like, are you sure? Are you sure? Like, They're not going to think I'm smart. Yeah, they're going to think I'm dumb or they're going to think this is so lame or like anyone can do it. And he's like, clearly YC didn't. And I was like, you're right. Because we didn't do that to get in. I just felt like I just felt like I had to be something that all my peers were being at the mm-hmm. time. And I felt like I had to like kind of like pander a little bit. And he was like, so? And then the great thing is I had a very simple, very like real powerful message on demo day. And I think, I mean, I don't, I don't know, but like I, one of our mentors said we had some of the most interest out of 400 companies, you know? And so I think we lose sight of that, especially, you know, when we look at our competitors or we look at their messaging and we look at their marketing and they've got all these like fancy things that they're doing, but sometimes simplicity wins. It always does. It always does. Um, and last question on the YC note, I guess since then you've raised a, over 20 million What's kind of like the one counterintuitive lesson you learned from like raising? Well, <laughs> it's the one that I told you last two weeks ago. Um, one, you you know, never send a deck because you lose all the power and all the control. Um, and also, everyone's like, oh, you've got to have a five, you know, five slide deck or ten slide deck or tw- I. It it's all it's all bogus. It's all it's all. Can I, can yeah, I go stop ahead. you real quick. When I saw your, because you showed us your pitch deck. 
I my jaw was dropped. I was like, it was like seventy three slides, and you're like, no, 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 it's it's gonna it's gonna take five minutes. It's gonna be five minutes. I was like, there's no way. And then you did it, and it only took five minutes. I know. Sorry, and I have long. a two minute version of that. That was forty five slides that people won't believe. You know. Yeah. I, I mean, in this day and age, we are so consumed with video content. We're so consumed with TikTok and YouTube Shorts, and you know all of that. We lose attention after a second after two seconds and so if the slide is not matching your words people are going to do something else and I think the old advice of you know here's this 12 deck slide and you got to go through it and it's like a million different points on one slide I mean that's just efficiency for the VCs because it's like barf out all the information let me digest it like the way I want to digest it and then like I'll get back to like having all the power and control in this relationship and I was like no I don't want to do that so instead of sending a pitch deck what should people send I mean I sent them my video I pre-recorded it in QuickTime just over a Google Slides and um we should, I don't know if there's a way, like, you can link it, but I'm happy to link it so people can see an example. It's not 73 different slides. It's just a different point per slide. So every slide should match every sentence that you say. Down to the science. It is, I, I rewatched it last night preparing for this. <laughs> and I and I, I texted my co-founders. I literally said, you guys, because we just did a pitch competition and we moved on to the next round. I was like, you guys, we are making our slide deck just like Jacqueline's. It was so good. I, I remember I was like, uh, yeah, I, I get it. I remember why we were so amazed. So to kind of close off, I always like to end off with just kind of understanding more you as a person because you've done a lot of great things. But could you describe yourself in one word? Empathetic. Define empathetic. I'm a little bad with vocabulary. No, no, it's okay. I am too. Um, I deeply feel other people's pain and happiness and wonder and excitement. Um, I am I'm very easily impacted by by the folks around me, but I think it's a superpower. I used to think that it was not because it would make me also very sensitive and very emotional when I was younger, um, and so I thought that was bad. Like I thought being sensitive was bad, but in fact, like it has, I think, enabled me to really understand when things are working, when things aren't working, and just to be there for other folks. But yeah, yeah empathetic, I, I would say. And then what motivated you to become the person you are today? Uh, I don't know. Some weird intrinsic thing in my brain that was like, go, do, be. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, growing up, I had, my mom's an immigrant. We had uh, a pretty, I, I mean, I'm very privileged to grow up in the United States. I think I had a well-rounded perspective of how bad things could be. Um, and I think I felt very privileged for what, you know, we had, even though at the time it didn't feel like much, but it was it was enough. Um, and I just always had this desire to personally do big things so that I could help more people. Um, I've just I've just wanted to help connect people with opportunities. I didn't have a strong network. I didn't have any network starting off, you know. And so I figured, like, where are all the people that want the opportunities? And let's go help them. I love that. And then what inspires you now? That I thought in the early days of my life, in order to do that, that I had to go be, like, rich and successful or famous or whatever, and then I would have a platform that would then, like, allow me to launch this, like, nonprofit. Um, and I realized that I can do it now. I can do it now with Howdy, and I, and I am doing it every single day. And so it's like I'm fulfilling this, like, lifelong dream I'm having in my 30s, which is, like, it's incredible. Couldn't be better. 
And what is one lesson you wish you would have known uh, before starting your career? I, so I put a lot of pressure on myself in high school uh, to do what, really well, to get into a great school, because I felt like, you know, if I went to like a top tier school, then, you know, I'd get top tier opportunities and, you know, whatever. And um, I didn't get into like the school of my dreams and I didn't have necessarily like the path that I thought I should have had. And I like there was I just had so much like rejection very early on. And I kept thinking to myself, like, wow, it's like all over for me. And what I didn't realize is there's like so many different windy roads. And even like when you read those stories where it's like, oh, this person started at 50 and look at them now. Or this person started this or this person was a teacher and retired. And then now is this thing, you know, I wish when I was younger, I had more examples of that because like I would have given myself a bit more grace when I failed. I love that. And then last one, what has been the most impactful life advice you've received? <laughs> the world's not fair. Get over it. We don't have to say anything else. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for joining. This was such a great conversation. I can't wait for it to go up. Um, any last words? How, where can people find you? Um, is there any way anyone could help you or anything you want to shout out? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I love just I love helping people. So uh, if you want, I'm at Howdy Jacqueline, J-A-C-Q-U-E-L-I-N-E on all of the different social mediums. And you can just email me at Jacqueline, J-A-C-Q-U-E-L-I-N-E at Howdy.com. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. This has been a great episode. See you guys next time. Bye.